0: age 15 to 21, I worked for a metal building company, and one thing I remember was creating the facade. The facade is just kind of the front of the building, the part everybody's going, going to see. And quite often, the facade is greater than, than the building itself. You know, you might have a facade that's 30 feet tall, but you walk around the side of the building and you see that that the the, the structure is actually... 20 feet tall. The rest is just decoration. Right? um, It gives the appearance of being greater than what it is. Other times, you would build a facade to kind of hide the less attractive things. Maybe the A.C. unit sitting on top of the roof or the, the plumbing vents or the electrical In any case, the facade, it puts on a show, so to speak, either to cover up what's ugly or to make what's inside look more impressive than what it really is. With chapter 3, we encounter a church that, that looks good on the outside. From the street, it's an appealing church. The people seem vibrant. The church appears healthy. Everybody shows up on Sunday. They're going through the motions of their meetings. But when Jesus walks among this church, when Jesus exposes what's behind the facade, he sees that they're actually a dead church. What's a church to do when Jesus exposes their facade? What's a church to do when, when Jesus... ...calls them dead? Is there any hope for that church? Jesus' message to the church in Sardis... ...answers these these questions... ...and in the process we learn... ...that a faithful church... ...isn't a church in name only... ...a faithful church stays alert... ...and diligently completes God's works... ...while anticipating Jesus' return. Read with me God's word from verse 1... He says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments... And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, this is now the fifth message where Jesus begins with a vision of his glory, pointing them back to that vision of chapter one. I hope you are getting the point. Faithfulness will always hinge on whether we are beholding Jesus' glory. In this case, he, it says he has the seven spirits of God. And the first time we saw that was chapter 1, verse 4. And I argued that the seven spirits refer not to angels, but to the Holy Spirit. Alongside Father and Son, he is the source of grace and peace. Also, in chapter 4, verse 5 of Revelation and in chapter 5, verse 6, John identifies, he tells us that the the seven spirits are seven torches and then he identifies them as seven eyes that are sent into all the earth. Both images come from one place in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 4, and we looked at that a little bit where God ...gives Zechariah a vision of a lampstand... ...and it's a better lampstand than the one that was in the tabernacle... ...and Zechariah is looking at this lampstand... ...with its seven burning torches... ...and he says, what are these? And then you have the angel that's interpreting things for Zechariah... ...and the angel gives him two answers. The first isn't a direct answer, but he says... ...not by might, nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And so the seven burning torches that Zechariah sees has something to do with God's spirit. And then later in verse 10 of Zechariah 4, he answers Zechariah very directly. He says, these seven, so these seven torches are the seven... That The seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. So this is the same imagery John is using in Revelation. John is following the progression of Zechariah's vision. He identifies the seven eyes with what the seven flames signify... ...namely, God's mighty presence in the Spirit. Also, if seven signifies... Fullness. Then the seven spirits refer to the fullness of the Spirit's presence. And John is saying Jesus has that. Okay? And it will be crucial to remember that Jesus has this uh, um, when we get to application. Jesus also has the seven stars. Okay, That comes from chapter 1, verse 16. In his right hand he held seven stars. Stars And then in chapter 1, verse 20, he explains what the seven stars are. He says they are the angels of the seven churches. So we're seeing the fullness of Jesus' sovereignty over the angels and the churches they represent. That's important for two reasons. One, verse 5 says that for the faithful, Jesus will confess their name before His Father And before his angels. And then, two, at the time John is writing, the currency had an image of the emperor's son, Jupiter. And Jupiter is extending his hands to seven stars in a display of divinity and power. You see him sitting on the globe, right? The world. He's ruling the world, right? I'm indebted to Craig Coaster for this observation. So, not only are we seeing here that Jesus is sovereign over the angels of the churches, John is kind of winking in the background, reassuring the church that Jesus is sovereign over all rulers as well. That Jesus is walking among the church in Sardis, like he walks among us and he finds a huge problem. When we read the message earlier, did you, did you notice anything missing from the other messages? Right Four messages have passed, and with every one of them, Jesus had something to commend about that church. With Ephesus, it was their toil and attention to sound teaching. With Smyrna, they were rich in Jesus. With Pergamum, they held fast and persecution. With Thyatira, it was their love and faith and service and and then maturing in those things. But when we come to Sardis, Jesus commends nothing. Yeah, we have a handful of folks who stay faithful and we'll get to that in verse 4, but that's how badly this church is doing. Jesus skips commending them and goes right to exposing them. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation or the name of being alive but you are dead. They've built a facade. In the eyes of man, they're alive. In the eyes of God, they're dead. And God's assessment is the real one. In what sense, though, can we say they are, they are dead? Okay, clearly they're still gathering. They're still impressing others around, around in, in society. And yet Jesus says they're dead. Well, in what sense are they dead? Well, they're dead to the things of God. They're dead to the things of God. Notice several clues. Verse 2 mentions that some things are about to die, and he says this in relation to their works not being complete. Okay, So God has works for them to do, like the ones that he commended the other churches for, love, service, witnessing to the world, uh, patient endurance. But they haven't brought these works to completion. They go by the name Christian, but they're not committed to God's works. You might say they're like the the guy in in Luke chapter 9, verse 60, when when Jesus says, Come, follow me. And he says, I've got to go bury my father first. And Jesus says, Let the dead bury the dead. As for you, go and proclaim the gospel of God. The dead are those not committed to God's work. Also, they've been... ...soiling their garments with the world. In verse 4, Jesus mentions a few in Sardis... ...who have not soiled their garments... ...which means most of them have been soiling their garments. In Revelation, stained clothing is a symbol for moral defilement. Okay, There are only two kinds of people in the book of Revelation. Those who walk with the Lamb in purity... ...and those who follow the beast... ...those who, who uh, do unclean things with the beast and his kingdom... ...sexual immorality, idolatry, falsehood, and so forth. So this church's deadness is related to moral compromises with the world. And then one more clue at the end of verse 5... ...Jesus speaks of confessing the name of those who are faithful before his Father... That's an allusion to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 10, verse 32, where Jesus says, "...everyone who acknowledges Me before men, I will also acknowledge before My Father." So He's speaking about faithful Christians publicly aligning themselves with Jesus instead of fearing man. Instead of trying to fit in with the world, taking a stand with Christ. Christ. It seems that the opposite is the case for most in the church in Sardis. So they're not committed to God's works. They're making moral compromises with the world. And they're not publicly acknowledging Jesus out of fear of man. And in that sense, Jesus calls them dead. They're dead to the things of God. That's what's going on in Sardis. You might compare them nowadays to what's called nominal Christianity to churches who go by the name Christian, but once you get inside, you can't tell them apart from the world. They're dead to the things of God. You might compare them to the unfaithful woman in 1 Timothy 5, 6. He says, She who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So what's a church like that to do? How does Jesus instruct them? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we get four commands with a warning. Four commands with a warning. The first command is, wake up, or become alert. Wake up. It's not the first time Jesus tells his disciples to wake up. Uh, Mark chapter 13 is helpful here. Mark 13, if you want to... Read along, 32 to 37. Jesus says, Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. So sleeping in this teaching of Jesus is an image for not doing your master's business. Staying awake means being about your master's business. And so Jesus is telling them, wake up. That is, wake up to your master's business. Paul also uses this imagery in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says... For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So he's, he's looking at the church and he's saying, you church, you are part of, uh, of a kingdom. That's like the day. It's like the sun fixing to pierce the morning on the world's moral darkness and it's crazy if you're part of that day rising on the world's moral darkness, it's crazy to then go to sleep with the world. Stay awake. If you belong to that day that's dawning, don't go to sleep like you're one of the night people. Stay awake. Keep living for Jesus' kingdom. Keep shining His light. Next, Jesus says, "Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. This language of completion appears in 1 John 4.17 where it says, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected or completed with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. When God's love comes to its full expression, comes to its completion in us such that we are loving others with that same love that God has shown us, that gives you confidence for the day of judgment. Okay? Your works of love evidence that you abide in God's love. You, you see, you, you love God's love, and His love is, force, is making you to love. And, and you see that, and you have confidence, like, I'm real, it's there. When Jesus looks at the church in Sardis, He doesn't see these works reaching their full expression. He doesn't find them blossoming with works that please God. He finds a garden that's full of dead works. And the only hope they have is like there's these few tiny little sprouts. But even they're fixing to die unless someone starts nurturing them. What they do have, even if it's almost zilch, they must strengthen what remains. Meaning, if you can find even one thing that squares with God's ways... Nurture that one thing. Commit yourself to it. Tend to it. Cause it to increase more and more. Strengthening is necessary for your revival. The next command is remember. So he hasn't found their works complete. Therefore, how are we going to get these works to come to their completion? Therefore, Remember how you have received and heard and keep. Keep it. We don't often think of it, but memory has a a powerful effect on our lives. We make decisions every day based on remembering the past. Something we learned. ...or experienced something that happened in history that we weren't there for... ...but we still live our lives according to the realities that that past created. Remembering isn't just a mere recollection of facts. The past kind of re-enters our present so as to have an effect on our future. So also here, Jesus wants them to remember what they received and heard. What they received and heard was the gospel... Was the gospel message? It was the apostles' teaching, and with the apostles' teaching came instructions on how to please Jesus, how to follow Jesus. They must also remember to keep that instruction. So, how are you going to bring those? Wor- how are you going to bring God's works to completion? Well, you're not just going to listen; you're going to also keep those. Words. You're going to follow through, right? You're going, to, you're going to keep. Keeping has to do with observing the ethical demands placed on Christians and then following through with them. And that largely revolves around resisting the world's idolatry and persevering in allegiance to Jesus in thought, word, and deed. And then lastly, he includes repent. Repentance includes not just abandoning sinful ways, but returning to Christ and His ways. It's a complete 180 from what you were doing before, in an active pursuit of what Jesus demands. And then comes the warning after these four commands. If they refuse to wake up, Jesus says in verse 3, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now it's possible that Jesus has this future return in view. It's also just as possible that Jesus is speaking of a judgment that he will bring within their own lifetimes. Either way, the point remains the same. Be faithful every day that your king is away. Live every moment anticipating his return. That's the way Jesus uses his teaching in Matthew 24, verse 43. If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. It would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So he says, wake up. He says, strengthen what remains. He says, remember, and then repent. So when Jesus exposes your facade, this is how you respond. When the word of God unmasks your true condition, this is how you respond. For those who hear these words and keep them, there is hope. There is hope that they can join the ones Jesus describes in verses 4 to 5. Look now at what Jesus Promises for those who are faithful. Jesus' promises for those who are faithful. For those who are faithful, Jesus will walk with them in white. Verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white. Garments. So, as I said before, having unclean garments symbolizes moral defilement, okay, moral impurity due to sin that separates you from life in God's presence. The same imagery appears elsewhere in Scripture, like with the vision of of Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 4, where he's, he's standing before the Lord and he's in filthy garments. And those filthy garments represented the iniquities of God's people. By contrast, you have those in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. Okay, that doesn't mean that they've never sinned. We know from chapter 7, and verse 14, that these same people have washed their robes In the blood of the Lamb. That's how they have become pure. How they have become white. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And if you are sitting there today thinking, I am covered in iniquities. I am covered in sins. I have been making moral compromises with the world. You need to wash your robes. ...in the blood of the Lamb. And when you do, Jesus will make you white. So it doesn't mean that they've never sinned... ...but it does mean that now that they're washed... ...now that they belong to the Lamb... ...instead of choosing to practice sin along with the world... ...they've chosen to walk in purity with Jesus. Of them, Jesus says, they will walk with me in white... ...for they are worthy meaning it's fitting to reward them for their faithfulness. As a reward, they are getting what their lives have proven that they want the most. They want Jesus the most. They want to walk with Jesus. And that is what Jesus will give them. Like Adam walking with God in the garden, those who overcome will walk with Jesus ...in the new Jerusalem. Like Enoch, walking with God... ...and then was taken to be with God. These two will be taken to be with God. They will be a glorified priesthood... ...and they will serve in Christ's presence... ...every day and night. And He who sits on the throne, chapter 7 says... ...will shelter them with His presence. For those who are faithful... ...Jesus also guarantees them eternal life... He says, I will never blot His name out of the book of life. So in Revelation, there's, there's, a, there's this book of life that belongs to the Lamb, and it contains the, name of the, the names of the Lamb's followers, the names of those that God graciously chose before the foundation of the world. Those names that are not written in the, in the book of life end up worshipping the beast, and their end is eternal death, separated from life in God's presence. For Jesus to say that He would never blot their names from this book is another way of Him reassuring His followers that they will gain life in God's presence. They might be disowned and cut off from their families for following Christ. They might be disowned and cut off from society from following Christ. But they will not be cut off from God. God will give them His inheritance and He will bring them into His city, the new Jerusalem. He will give them life there. For those who are faithful, Jesus will also confess their names before God. He says, I will confess His name before my Father and before His angels. Craig Koester explains this well. He says, acknowledging someone means affirming a relationship with that person in a way that shows loyalty and favor. Since Christ has a position of honor before God and the angels... Those he acknowledges share in the honor that belongs to him. So we have walking with Jesus in white. We have eternal life in God's presence. Sharing in Jesus' honors. These are the rewards for the faithful. Okay, how then can we stay faithful? How can we guard ourselves from becoming just just a facade of a church from becoming just a church in name only, we must realize that that this letter circulated among all seven churches. It's written to Sardis, but at the same time it says, let him who has an ear hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, plural, right? See, you, you. The whole, All seven of the churches needed to hear this message to Sardis. We, we in receiving it, can't think of ourselves too highly here. Oh, like, oh, that's not us, so we can, we can set that one aside for now until the day that we are a dead church, and then we'll have to wake up and listen to it. No, you need to hear it now. We must read a message like this one with humility. It's too easy to become Christian In name only. Nominal Christianity is a perennial and worldwide problem. And it happens for a variety of reasons. Perhaps a church begins to embrace the religious pluralism of our culture... ...such that they no longer uphold the exclusive claims of Jesus. And at that point, what do they have to offer? If Jesus is just one way among others, why call them to repentance, right? Others desire to fit in with the culture. They fear looking irrelevant or accused of bigotry. And so they water down the message. And over time, they lose the gospel. For others, materialism starts distracting them from total obedience. People begin loving their possessions more than they love Christ's kingdom. So their possessions... And their love for their possessions turn, turn them into a church in name only. With others, they, they preach and teach what Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. The preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Others aren't careful enough with church membership. They baptize the unregenerate, and they tolerate the unrepentant, such that over time, a false church replaces the true one. Others wear the name Christian because it best aligns with their moral and political positions, but not because they love Jesus. A church can also have all the right answers, but lack the Spirit's regenerating power. Nominal Christianity wears many faces, and it happens for a variety of reasons. And in the face of this culture, how are we to respond so that Jesus does not say of us, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're really dead. Well, for starters, I think you need to make sure that your own faith is genuine. We need to make sure that our own faith is genuine. That you're not just putting up a facade. Now, I wrote down a few questions to to consider. They'll they'll be posted on the website this Tuesday. But but use them as an opportunity to diagnose your spiritual state. To determine how, how much like Sardis you might be or not. Do you hunger for God and pursue Him and pursue knowing Him more deeply daily? Do you hunger for God and pursue knowing Him more more deeply? Are the Scriptures necessary sustenance for your soul? Are, are they bread? ...gives you life every day? Or are you just kind of... ...meh, I can make it without them. I'll get it on Sunday. Or are you waking up... ...are you having those days where maybe you miss reading... ...and you're just, I've got to get some Bible in me. I need this for my life. Do you treasure time in prayer calling on the Father often? Do you sense God's presence reassuring your spirit that you are His child? That you belong to Him? That you're His son? That you're His daughter? Have you reduced Christianity to hearing the Word without doing the Word? Are you loving members in your church sacrificially or just coasting and letting everybody else take care of things? Are you a gracious, merciful person to others, knowing, knowing how, much God's, how much mercy God has shown you? What has the call of Christ in the Gospel costed you lately? Anything? Do you acknowledge Christ before others or assume, do you walk around in life assuming everybody is just okay? They'll be fine. Spend some time thinking about these questions. Set them before the Lord and ask Him for discernment. If you find yourself... If you you find that you've been faking it just to fit in with the crowd that you grew up with, if you find yourself, you know, that you've, you've been actually pretending for a long time to maintain a certain image before others, repent and trust Christ. Turn to Him now. Don't wait for the day that He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Ask His forgiveness today. If you already know Him, ask the Lord to expose any facades that may exist in your life and then to replace those facades with real, wholehearted, consistent obedience. Follow the path of repentance that Jesus outlines here. Start by waking up to your Master's business. Right? Become alert to what God is doing in the world and commit yourself to His ways as those ways are outlined in Scripture. Also, strengthen what remains. Regularly in the New Testament, we find this word, uh, st- to strengthen. Um, Paul went from one place to the next. Right? These are new church plants. Young church plants. And he went from one city to the next. It says, strengthening all the disciples. In Romans 11 he desired earnestly to impart a spiritual gift in order to strengthen the church. Timothy traveled to the Thessalonian church to strengthen and exhort their faith. So in each case, what these, what these uh, saints are doing is they are strengthening the good things that are already present, that are already existent. So strengthening here is necessary to our revival. The path of repentance also includes remembering Jesus' words and keeping them. The problem with Sardis is not that they didn't know enough or that they hadn't received what they needed. The problem is this. What they did receive, they didn't do anything with it. They didn't keep it. To use the words of James, they had become hearers only and not doers of the word. We also noted how they they weren't committed to God's works. They were making moral compromises with the world and they chose not to acknowledge Jesus before others. How how are you doing with with these things? Are you bringing the Lord's works to completion in your own life? Or are you making moral compromises with the world? You see, Jesus has appointed all of us. He has given us a specific post in His church to watch out for. But have you fallen asleep on the job, so to speak? And in doing so, by by falling asleep, have you also jeopardized the health of the church? Your compromises with the world are not limited to you. They hurt everybody in this room. So keep yourself unstained from the world. Imitate the few who chose not to soil their garments, who chose to walk with the Lamb in purity. Imitate their lives. Follow them in acknowledging Jesus' name before others. Don't let the desire to fit in keep you silent about Jesus. If we want to protect this church from becoming a dead church, we must do more than just hear the word. We must... The word. So follow the path of repentance here that Jesus lines out. And the next, cry out to Jesus who has the fullness of the Spirit. Cry out to Jesus who has the fullness of the Spirit. We know from other places in Scripture that it's the Spirit who gives life to God's people. You, some of you may remember, you know, Ezekiel thirty-seven, and he looks over the valley of dry bones, which symbolizes Israel being dead. Right? They're a dead people. They're dead to the things of God, like this church in Sardis was. And but, but he commands Ezekiel to speak the words of God over the bones, and the bones, right? They start coming to life. And, and, and at, towards the end of the passage in verse 14, God says, I will put my spirit within you as a nation, and you shall live. Another place is John six thirty three, when Jesus says it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So the only hope for a dead church is the Spirit giving life. The only hope for a church that's got just a few folks still committed to Jesus is the Spirit. And verse 1 says that Jesus has the seven Spirits of God. He has the Spirit in It's in His fullness. Jesus has the fullness of the Spirit to accomplish God's purpose. And what happened to the church in Acts chapter 2, verse 33, when the risen Jesus pours out the Spirit on the church? They come alive with bold obedience. If we want to guard ourselves from growing stagnant, if we want to protect ourselves from becoming a facade, We must keep coming to Jesus for the Spirit. We must humble ourselves in prayer, asking for the Spirit to revive and to restore and to strengthen and to empower. If something feels dead in the church, it's not uncommon for... Leadership teams and members to, to start turning to human means to revive the church. We need a new building program. We need new logos. We need, we need a new website. We need ministry partnerships. We need, we need special events to get some life in this church. And these things may attract people and give the impression of being alive. But none of these things will create the life that Jesus wants. Such life only comes by the Spirit. Jesus died and rose again to give you the gift of His Holy Spirit. So join each other in praying for for the Spirit's life. Join each other in praying for the Spirit to revive And then finally, live every moment anticipating Jesus' return. Live every moment anticipating Jesus' return. Christianity is not a matter of just hanging in there until the end. It's not a matter of just getting forgiveness and then living like we would have lived anyway without Jesus. Jesus has taught us how to wait for His return not only do we have the good, some of the good things to imitate in these other churches that he has commended already, things like diligence and sound teaching and making ourselves rich in Jesus and holding fast in persecution and growing in love and service. Not only that, but we have here a few in Sardis who are worthy of imitation as well and how they choose holiness over worldliness. We must stay alert. To our master's business. You must act wisely by readying yourself to meet Jesus, right? Like the, the parable of the of the virgins. They kept their lamps lit in Matthew twenty-five. A faithful church is not a church in name only. A faithful church stays alert and diligently completes God's works. While anticipating Jesus' return. Now we have the opportunity together, even right now, to remind ourselves of Jesus' return. We're going to come to the table and I want you to be thinking about these things. How How can I be more faithful to Jesus? How can I live every day in light of his return and then eat? And drink together in that remembrance. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches.